Uh, if you're new here or if you're listening to our podcast, we are in the second week, uh, really, of a mini-series that we've been doing, and it's called The Kardashians, The Real Housewives in One Ancient Psalm. And really what we've been doing in this series is we're challenging you about where you get your ideas about reality from. Everyone has ideas about reality, right? I mean, most of the ideas that you have about reality, <clears throat> excuse me, are learned. And I think we, we'd be extremely foolish to think that pop culture hasn't affected all of us to some extent. Even if you've never seen uh, the Kardashians or uh, the Real Housewives shows, they have had an enormous impact on our culture. And I said last week, the Real Housewives is a television franchise. It's based in six different cities now. It's watched by millions of people every week. And then, as, as I said last week too, uh, Kim Kardashian alone has more followers than some, on Twitter than some countries have people, right? She, she ha- I, in fact, I said last Sunday, I said that she had 15 and a half million followers on Twitter. My wife, who loves to find like little things that I say that are wrong like that, she actually pointed out to me that Kim Kardashian has over 18 million followers. And then I said, well, that's only because the difference is because of the fact that I spoke about her last week. So the difference in followers. Um, whatever set of numbers that you use, uh, the Kardashians, the Real Housewives, and other reality TV shows like them epitomize for a lot of people what the good life is all about, what life really means. Money, fame, cars, houses, beauty. I mean, really, who, who could argue that that's what the good life is all about? And yet, uh, this one ancient psalm that we're looking at does argue about what the good life is. is. And it challenges those very ideas. And it stands in stark contrast to the popular ideas of our day about what makes life good and what makes it uh, meaningful. I want to take you back to that psalm this morning. And I want to look at some of the profound, timeless wisdom of this psalm that is so countercultural. If you have a Bible, turn there with me to Psalm 1. If you have an old school copy of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. If you have a digital copy, you can look it up uh, in the table of contents on the digital copy. But this, this psalm has a great deal to say about reality in a very small amount of space. And as I said, much of it is profoundly countercultural. And I, I don't know if you guys have done it, but I challenged some of you last week. I, I challenge you to memorize uh, this psalm. And I, I hope you've taken me up on that because I think you'll find that in just this short little psalm, there is so much profound wisdom uh, about reality. Let's read it through again, and then uh, we'll look at the last half of the psalm uh, this Sunday. Uh, okay, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And you probably don't need my help to see that central to this psalm is a comparison of two very different approaches to life. One is the way of the righteous, and one is the way of the wicked or the ungodly. But as we said last week, I don't want you to overreact to those words. I don't want you to overreact to the words uh, wicked or ungodly or, or, or mockers, because I know that, I know that instinctively they, they probably make you think like they're referring to the most uh, base, uh, disgusting, depraved people in all so- of society. But that's not the idea behind those words at all. In reality, those words refer to people who could very well be very moral people. 
Uh, they might be your next-door neighbors. They can be very nice people, uh, good citizens, your parents. They, they could even be reality TV stars. They're just, they're just people who've had no life-changing encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that they're bad people necessarily. It just means that they're people that don't, uh, they just don't orient their lives around Christ. Now, last week we said that the first half of the psalm really deals with some very countercultural ideas about happiness. That's what the word blessed means. The first word blessed, it means happy. And that's not uh, minimizing any great theology. The word just means happy. In fact, the, the word is, in the Hebrew is plural, and it means, oh, the happiness many times over. So the first part of the psalm is really dealing with the subject of happiness. But today I want to focus in on the, I want to focus in on the starkly contrasting images in the middle of the psalm. I don't know if you notice them or not, but it's this, it's this contrast between a deeply rooted tree planted by life-giving streams of water and chaff. So on the one hand, you've got this deeply rooted tree, and on the other hand, you've got this chaff that it says the wind blows away. Now let's make sure that we understand what chaff is. And I think the purpose uh, behind this contrast will become very clear, and maybe even uh, the reason that we chose the Kardashians and the Real Housewives as a contrast to Psalm 1 will become clear to you too. Chaff is uh, it's an agricultural word. Back then, when you harvested grain, you would, you'd throw the grain uh, up in the air, and it, up into the wind. And the grain consisted of two parts. On the one hand, you had the internal kernel. And that, because it weighed something, because it was substantive, it would fall to the ground. But then you had another part of the grain that was just the outside husk around the kernel, which was useless, and it was so light that the wind would just blow it away. So you throw it up, the grain comes down, and the husk or the chaff, it just, because it's so light, it just blows away. So when Psalm 1 is, when it talks about a life of chaff, what it's saying is it's talking about a life which is totally based in just externals. That's what chaff means. In other words, a life that's totally consisting in show and facade. A life without any anchor, uh, without any enduring reality behind the facade. It means to be constantly blown about by the winds of public opinion and trends. By the winds of your own impulses and your own feelings of the moment. In other words, there's no substance to it. Perhaps uh, the word superficial is a good summary word to describe all that Psalm 1 applies, when it, uh, all that it means when it talks about chaff. Now, any of that ringing a bell to you? Are there, I don't know, a couple of reality TV shows that come to mind when I describe the meaning behind the word chaff? Any, any reality word, uh, TV shows that come to mind? In fact, I, I would argue that there might not be a better pure example of chaff than reality TV stars who are famous for simply being born into privilege or marrying into wealth, right? But I, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm, not, I, I'm really not just picking on the Kardashians and the real housewives. Um, let's, let's acknowledge that all of us have been affected by the superficiality and weightlessness of our culture. Let, let me show you what I mean. When, when you read this psalm and you think about the imagery here in the psalm and, and what it means, let me ask you something. Which would you rather be? Would you rather be a deeply rooted tree planted by streams of life giving nourishing water? 
or would you rather be chaff that's superficial and insubstantial, uh, so light that the winds of life blow it in every direction? Which one would you rather be? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would bet you that most of you probably answered that you'd like to be the tree planted by streams of living water. Of course you would. Who, who, doesn't, who doesn't want to be strong? Who doesn't want to be enduring? Who doesn't want to be rooted? The nice thing about that is when the storms of life blow, you're not going to get blown away. And when, the, when, the, you know, when, when trials come along and the, and the sun of life is burning so hot on your life, um, because your roots are near streams of living water, your leaf won't wither, right? I mean, rootedness gives you the ability to, to stand your ground and, and roots protect you and they nourish you and they give you a sense of substance and endurance and stability, all of which is great stuff. That's why every one of you in your head probably said, I'd rather be a tree. But there's a downside to rootedness. Rootedness, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but rootedness, it restricts some of your freedom. A tree that's rooted pretty much is limited to one spot. When you're rooted, you can't just do anything. You can't just go anywhere on a whim. Roots do kind of confine you, don't they? And they kind of cramp your style. Rootedness implies, oh, egad, it's one of the worst words in our culture. It implies commitment, or even worse, obligations. Rootedness means that you sometimes have to say no to things that you want to say yes to, and sometimes it means saying yes to things that you want to say no to. So let me ask you, are you still sure that you want to be rooted? You still sure about that? Let's find out. Here, I gave you, last week, I gave you just a little multiple choice question that I wanted you to answer. I'm going to give you a couple more, a little multiple choice, a little multiple choice test, okay? I want you to be honest with yourself as you answer these questions. Okay, this is, the first one's for the guys, okay? Question number one. Here, here you go. Guys, this is for you. So you've signed up to teach Sunday school in your church. The church expects you to be there. The children need you. The other teachers are counting on you to be there. But on Friday... A friend, of you call, a friend of yours calls with two extra tickets to the Colts game. Uh, it's a noon game on Sunday. Uh, front row, 50-yard line, free parking, and you get to go down to the locker room after the game for autographs, and it's not going to cost you anything. Okay, here's the, here's the multiple-choice question. Do you, A, say, no, thank you, I've made a prior commitment to teach Sunday school. Do you, B, take the tickets, invite a friend, and send your wife to Sunday school in your place? Or you see, ask, who are they playing before you decide? Which, you get my point, right, guys? Which one of those would you choose? Rootedness or chaff? Which one? Okay, here's the second question. Ladies, this, this one uh, is for you. Your boyfriend invites you to move in with him because, like, we're definitely going to get married anyway as soon as I graduate. What does a piece of paper really mean anyway when we love each other so much? By the way, okay, I just par- uh, parenthetically, this is free, what I'm going to give you here. Ladies, if you ever hear a guy say that to you, just get as far away as you can, because that does not mean anything. Let me, let me just say something about this stupid argument about what does a piece of paper mean. If you think a piece of paper doesn't make any difference, next time an officer stops you for speeding and writes you a ticket, I dare you to tear that piece of paper up right in his face and see what that piece of paper means. Or the next time that your boss hands you a paycheck, just tear it up and say, what does a piece of paper mean? Let me tell you something. The paper isn't worth much, but what it represents is worth a lot. And in the case of marriage, it means commitment. It means rootedness as opposed to chaff. That was free. I didn't charge you for anything there. Okay. (laughs) 
There you go. Okay, so he offers this great offer to you. Do you, A, say, no, I'm committed to sexual purity. B, start moving his clothes into the hall closet so you can make room for yours in the bedroom. Or C, break out your inner Beyonce and start singing, if you like it, put a ring on it. Which of those do you, which of those do you do? I, okay, here's, here's my point. In the abstract, rootedness sounds like a great idea. But when rootedness begins to limit our options and our freedom to respond however we want to respond in the moment, we're not all that different than the Kardashians or the Real Housewives if we're honest with ourselves. Perhaps the difference is just one of scale, not really principle. What would you compromise for the advancement of your career? Would you be willing to compromise to protect your financial well-being? What would you be willing to compromise to move a relationship forward in the direction that you'd like to see it go? We, we, we rather, I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I include myself in this, we rather prefer the superficiality of the culture's moral relativism that allows me to be more of a tumbleweed than an oak tree. Free to move, free to roam, free to go where the wind of my emotions blows, what I feel in the moment. You see, we've all been affected by the superficiality and weightlessness of our day, and we fight the temptation to live just merely superficial lives of no substance. In fact, a well-known author by the name of Richard Foster argues this. Listen to what he says. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Why? Why why is it that superficiality is such a curse to our culture? Well, Well, just look at the text for just a moment. First, I want you to see this, that it creates, superficiality creates intellectual instability. Watch this. He says, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of, of uh, the wicked. Stay away, says the psalmist, of the counsel of the wicked. Now, we we said last week that the counsel of the wicked refers to the philosophical ideas of a culture that rejects the idea of a God who insists on moral absolutes. So so the counsel of the wicked is essentially moral relativism. The word that's that's, that's translated uh, wicked here is a word that means fitful. It means sleepless. It means uh, restless. And you see, the, the point that the, that, the, that the author of Psalm 1 is making is that any philosophical or intellectual system that leaves God out of the equation is just a revolving, uh, just a revolving door of ideas. It's fitless. It's, it's, excuse me, it's fitful. It's restless. It's always changing, like chaff. It's just, it's just always blown around by whatever is new and trendy. Think about this. Some of you who've lived long enough would know this, that uh, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, Uh, Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis was considered the wave of the future. If you had trouble with that, if you didn't believe in it, you were considered to be very primitive and very unenlightened. Fast forward to today. Freud is mocked and vilified and made fun of in psychological and psychiatric circles. See, it's just just blowing around. There There was a time in America in which most Americans were in agreement 
that communism was a repressive ideological system that needed to be resisted at all costs. I mean, not, not every American believed it, but most Americans really believe that about communism. Imagine my fascination when I came across an article in Forbes magazine just a couple of years ago suggesting that perhaps China should, be the, should become the economic model uh, for America in the future. That was just a couple of years ago. Then, lo and behold, just two years later, the New York Times published an article arguing that recent political and economic upheavals uh, in China signal that perhaps we were premature in our positive assessment of China as an economic model. Chaff. Chaff. Wind just blows around. It all changes. The point is that everything that you read right now that's a prediction of what Americans will think or believe or what the future will hold will will be in the dustbin 80 years from now, if not five years from now. Why? Well, it's because the counsel of the ungodly is restless. It's fitful. It's rootless. And if you constantly believe it, it will turn you into chaff. There is an intellectual instability about all of that. Unlike Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that styles and trends and things like that in Christianity don't change. Music's changed a lot. The way people dress when they come to church changed a lot. The use of technology, all of that's changed a lot. But here's what's fascinating. I can sit, my, my wife's grandfather was a pastor. I can sit down with books from his library, and I can see written in the notes, the books from his library, I can see written in the notes truths that are as true today as they were when he was a pastor in the 1940s, in the 1950s, all these years later. And I can read commentaries from people that were Christians hundreds of years ago, and the truths still apply today. One is rooted, one is chaff. Stay away, he says, from the counsel of the ungodly, because it's it's philosophically fitful and restless. Now, there's 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 a second thing that superficiality creates, Uh, in a culture, one of the reasons that it is uh, the curse of our age. It creates um, societal and personal chaos. Societal and personal chaos. When, When moral relativism abounds and the idea of rootedness in absolute truth is rejected, here's the question that everyone has to confront at some point. Who can you trust? Who can you trust? How many of you feel that we live in a trustworthy society? in which you can trust people who make promises to you. Like, do you trust your politicians? (laughs) Oh, I hope hope they could hear that on the podcast. Uh, Do you trust advertisers? Like, when, when you see a furniture company running an advertisement that says, going out of business sale, do you think they're really going out of business? Or do you think this is just their latest uh, going out of business sale? Which do you think? Do you even trust your eyes anymore? Like, are you sure that the pictures that you see on the covers of magazines of these perfect women, are you sure that they haven't been photoshopped to the point that you wouldn't even recognize the original anymore? Who can you trust? Can you trust your pastors? That they really have your best interests at heart and the best interests of the cause of Christ at heart? Who can you trust? When you watch the real... <laughs> I get a kick out of this. When you watch the real housewives, do you really believe that they're all real? And how many of you feel strongly that Kim and Kanye's marriage is going to be a long-lasting and stable marriage? How many of you feel that? But for that matter, honestly, how many weddings do you go to today where you think maybe you just ought to keep the receipts for the wedding gift? How many weddings do you go to where you feel like that? Who, Who do you trust? Who do you trust today? 
And like, if you're saying to yourself right now, yeah, he's right, man, that, that's, that's how I feel. And, and that's all wrong. I mean, our culture shouldn't be that way. Something's wrong with our culture. Understand, this is what the Bible is describing as a culture of chaff. Uh, people who are being tumbleweeds instead of oak trees. Superficial instead of rooted. Relativists, not absolutists. Living in a culture in which everything is negotiable and everything is compromisable. And it creates a hollowness in us, an insincerity in which you can't trust anyone because everyone's hiding behind a facade, doing what's best for them in the moment. It's a societal and personal chaos that it creates, this chaff, this chaff-like existence, this superficiality that so many of us live. Superficiality, it's the curse of our age. The desperate need, Foster said again, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Now, the question is, how do we, how do we, trade, how do we trade the superficiality that's destroying us individually and destroying our culture? How do we trade that for a life of substance and deep-rootedness? And by the way, I just, I, I, let me say this, that as we ask that question, let's also acknowledge that what's happening Uh, The same temptation for individuals to give way to superficiality instead of substance, it affects the local church too. I mean, let's, let's just be honest that it affects how we do church. There's an enormous temptation for churches to focus all of their energy on what's trendy and to do stuff for shock value and to just focus on emotions and experience and flash rather than to push for, and notice what I'm gonna say here, okay? Pay very close attention to what I'm gonna say. Rather than to push for substance plus emotions and experience. See, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You can have a church that has a lot of emotion and experience, but it's got to be rooted by substance. But it's not either substance or emotion. You understand that? That's nuanced, and it's, but it's very important that you understand that. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Churches need to include both. But it is so easy for us as a church to just focus on external stuff and stuff that gets shock value and emotions and experience, but not push for substance. But we have to push for substance. How do we do that as a church? How do we do that individually? How do we make sure that we continue to push for substance and to be people of substance rather than to be people who are just extremely superficial and rather than being a church that's extremely superficial. Well, I want you to notice the difference. Just look at the text again. I want you to notice the difference in this text between the tree and the chaff. Here's the the difference. The chaff is connected to nothing. Do you notice that? The tree, on the other hand, is connected to something besides itself. Pay close attention to that. The tree has roots that go out beyond itself, where the chaff doesn't. That's why, that's why the chaff is representative of a life in which the only thing that guides you is what's inside you, your impulses and your feelings. Therefore, there's nothing inside of you, there's nothing there to help you make decisions but what you want and what you think is best. There's nothing outside of you with chaff that can discipline you. And the theological word that the New Testament uses for chaff is the word flesh. It's just you. Your instincts, your impulses, your feelings, your emotions, that's it. On the other hand, there's this tree. And I want you to notice this. This tree goes outside of itself for life. It puts its roots into the stream of water 
which flow by it. And if you look at the structure of this psalm, the streams of water in this psalm are exactly parallel to the phrase, the law of the Lord. And we talked about this last week, that the law of the Lord refers to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, which was a revelation of God's holy character, his insistence on moral absolutes, and his promise that he would do for humanity what humanity could never do for itself by sending us a redeemer. Okay? That's, when he says the law of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. That, that's truth. And so what this passage is saying is that if you want to be a person of substance, you must connect yourself to truth. Because God alone has substance. God alone has weightiness. This is, when you read the word in the Bible, when you read the word glory, when we sing a song about God's glory, what that word is referring to is substance, weightiness. God alone, he's the only being in the world that is weighty. He's the only being in the world that is substantive. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else is chaff. He's both the subject and the object of life. Anybody here see the movie Gravity? You see that movie? Okay, great movie. There's a scene in which Sandra Bullock gets cut off, or her character, it's not actually Sandra Bullock, but it's her character, gets cut off from the tether that connects her to the ship, and she just starts to float weightlessly away from the ship, which was her source of life. Okay, think about it in these terms. Think of the tether that connected Sandra Bullock to the ship. The tether was truth. Think of God as the ship. You get connected to God, who is the source of your life, by his truth. Get disconnected, and you're just lost in space, floating around, weightless. Some of you here today are struggling with feelings of being inconsequential. Like you wonder if you matter. You wonder if you matter to anyone. You kind of feel weightless. And I want you to know you need to know that that is not unusual. You really don't need to go see a counselor for that. What you need to understand is that human beings only experience a feeling of substantiveness, of weightiness, by association. Think about that. Human beings only experience a feeling of substantiveness or of weightiness by association. Think of it. Why do, why do men leave their wives and families and marry a trophy wife? Uh, it's because they feel weightless and unsubstantial. No matter how much money they've made, no matter how much success they've had, they feel weightless and unsubstantial by themselves. And they, they try to gain substance by association. Why is it that some women would compromise their body and soul to sleep with a famous man or a wealthy man or a powerful man? Substance by association. Why is it that the name Mercedes or Prada or Chanel are brands that people aspire to be associated with? It's because those names give you a sense of substance by association. See, we only experience substance by association, you see. But since everything other than God in the world is fleeting, we have to keep finding something new and something weightier to derive substance from to keep us from just floating away weightless into space. Only to the degree, only to the degree that you give God glory with your life do you have substance to yourself. Do you see that? To the degree that you obey God, you are real. And to the degree that you don't obey God, you're superficial and weightless and fleeting. This is why the text ends by saying that the wicked will not stand in the judgment and the way of the wicked will perish. It's because there's no enduring substance to them. They're just hollowed out husks. The paradox of the gospel is that the more you say to God, 
Your will matters more than my will. I want to live for your glory, not mine. It's only then that you begin to matter to the only one who matters. The more you put him first in your romantic life, in your business life, in your career, in your marriage, the more you matter. Because we only gain substance by association. I want to close on this. I want you to notice that the text does not say that the godly are like a large oak tree and the wicked are like a little dogwood tree. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says one is a tree and the other is chaff. What's the difference? One is alive and the other is dead. The difference is one of nature. Uh, what makes the tree alive? It's the stream. As the tree puts its roots into the water, the water turns the tree into a living organism. And what makes the imagery so fascinating here is that in the book of John, in the New Testament, Jesus comes along, Jesus comes along, and he has the audacity to describe himself. Listen to, listen to this. He describes himself in the book of John as living water. And he actually says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What's so audacious about that claim is that Jesus is claiming to be the life-giving streams of Psalm 1. Jesus is saying, I am that. He's the one that the law of the Lord was always pointing to as the one who would fulfill the law and do for man what man could never do for himself. His glory, his weightiness, his substantiveness becomes yours at the moment that you sink your roots into his living water. And the Bible calls that being born again spiritually. It means going from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. And if you've never been born again, you need to be born again. You need Jesus Christ. A life of substance begins when you're defined by the only one who has ever mattered, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would, bow your heads with me. And I'd just like to give you the opportunity this morning, if you've never come to a place in your life where you have said, yes, Jesus, I want to be associated with you. I want your weightiness and your substance to become mine. I want your life to become mine. I'm going to trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that you died on the cross. I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that your blood was shed for me, that your body was broken for me. I want you to be my Savior. I don't want to be weightless. I don't want to be insignificant anymore. I want to be associated with you, Jesus. The Bible says that if you come to that place right now in the privacy of your seat, you can know that you have eternal life, that his life becomes yours, that his glory becomes your glory. And uh, it really doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't really matter where you were yesterday. And it really doesn't matter how good a person you are because even your goodness is filthy rags before God. You need Jesus. Everyone here needs Jesus. And this would be a great opportunity for you to say to Jesus, yes, be my Savior, be my Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess to you this morning as a church that we are as much a part of the superficiality of our culture as, as anyone else is. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us people of substance as we become more and more engaged with you and your truth. Lord Jesus, we affirm today that we need you. 
And for those that are here this morning that maybe this would be the first time for them to ever come to a place where they have accepted you as their Savior, I pray that you would reassure them this morning, that you would give them a sense of your presence, your power, that you've moved them from death to life, and that they now have a sense of your weightiness and your substance and your life and your glory. We worship you, Lord Jesus, as the subject and the object of life, the only one who's ever mattered. And it's in your name that we worship and pray. Amen.